preaching last week than I maybe have ever experienced before. And here's what I said, if you weren't here. I said, Satan and the demons thought they were winning on Good Friday. They had already entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot and caused him to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. They had arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with no fight. They had convicted Jesus in a sham trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin and had before Pilate won a sentence of execution. The soldiers, with the fury of the demons behind them, had beaten Jesus, flogged Jesus. They had nearly torn every piece of flesh off of his back. And when the citizens of Jerusalem were given the opportunity to release Jesus, they cried, what? Crucify, crucify. So there he was on the cross, this naked, tortured, and barely recognizable human, barely recognizable human figure with the charge of guilt that was written and nailed to the cross above his head. This is the king of the Jews. And what I said is that if you and I were able to see into the spiritual world of Good Friday, what the cross would look like, I believe, in Lord of the Rings terms, is millions and millions of orcs and Easterlings and uh, wolves and hags encircling Jesus Christ there. They were leering. They were jeering. They were banging their swords and shields. They were mocking and laughing and toasting and celebrating because they were absolutely convinced that they had won the decisive victory. In fact, they, they were accomplishing what they desired from the very beginning, which was to you know, kill God and, and knock him out of this world from the garden and destroy everything that God had created and was precious and dear to him. They thought they were winning until that very, very moment when Jesus cried, it is finished. That was a victory shout. That was not a moan of a dying man. That was a, a victory shout of triumph. And they realized then that their plans had completely backfired. They thought they were crucifying the king of the Jews when in reality, in God's mysterious reality, they were crucifying our sins. Our record of debt, our legal indebtedness to, to God, uh, our, all that we have ever said and done that is wrong and all the good things that we should have said and done but never did, mysteriously, that was crucified in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And Paul, who never gets tired of celebrating the, the paradox of the cross, he calls it the weakness of God triumphing over man's strength and the folly of God triumphing over man's wisdom. And, and the most paradoxical thing of it all is what we covered in verses 8 through 15 last week, that instead of Jesus being strict and humiliated and subject to scorn and shame, it was the demons who were disarmored. They were disarmed. They were naked and they were exposed. They were the ones hung up on the cross. They bore the shame and the humiliation of Good Friday 
And when the day was over and Jesus was buried in the tomb, it was they who slunk away from the field of battle with their tails tucked between their legs and their heads barely stretching above the ground. Glory, hallelujah. (laughs) But the battle is not over, of course. And I warned last week that what the demons do is they try to utilize false teaching, false philosophies, false ideologies to still try and enslave and take people captive. And here in today's passage, we discover the way that they were trying to entrap these early Christians in the city of a small city in the middle of Turkey, a brand new church in Colossae. Um, They were trying to entrap these Christians through legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. And that may not sound like the best sermon title, (laughs) but all of God's word is good for us to learn from. Um, And I'm thankful that we get to, to look at it together. Let's pray before we read. Our gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So make us hungry for this, your word, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, we pray, the bread of heaven. Amen. Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival a a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Let me make a comment right here. With regard to what you eat or drink, Paul's clearly talking about the Jewish dietary guidelines that every faithful Jew was expected to follow. And with regard to a religious festival, he's clearly talking here about the Jewish calendar that one, an observant Jew, would, uh, would, uh, you know, make their life uh, correspond to the rhythm of that calendar. So every year you would have a festivals to go to. Every month you would have a new moon to uh, celebrate. And every Sabbath, every Saturday, you would have a very meticulous Sabbath that you had to, um, to uh, obey to. In verse 17, but these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however... Is found in Christ. So do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as, it, as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, uh, you died with Christ, he says, on Good Friday to the powers of the demons. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? And here's Paul, Paul has given us an indication that some of the Christians in Colossae were beginning to follow this false teaching. The triad, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom 
with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value, any value at all, in restraining sensual indulgence. Let me begin with mysticism and asceticism. What if there really was a way for us to peel back the veil that separates us between here and heaven? What if it was really possible for us to enter into the heavenly throne room right now and to see God seated on his throne, witness the angels, the seraphim and cherubim whom we sang about in our first hymn this, this morning, witness them in all of their glory. We would see fire because, you know, a seraphim was just the Hebrew word for fire. These fire beings up there. And we would see a sea of glass in the throne room. Um, what if we could do that? Well, you're in luck because we can. Here, I have a mild psychedelic pill that if you take it, your mind and your emotions are going to be absolutely blown away. And what is more, here is my friend Pete and my friend Selena, along with 20 other people whose testimonials you can believe in, who have actually taken this pill and have gone there. And they say the pill helps you relax, and it enables you to see what is really real, because heaven is really real, and the throne room of God is more, frankly, more real than this room is right now. And you can go there, and you can see it, and you can experience it, because I have. Merkaba mysticism was a Jewish movement in the early first centuries that was interested in these things. It was trying to, uh, it was very interested in the throne room of God and the presence of angels. The word Merkaba comes from the Hebrew word chariot. The uh, great chariot of the angels that is found in Ezekiel's vision, in Ezekiel chapter 1, that's where the the mysticism gets its name from. But instead of a little pill that they would give you, a psychedelic trip of sort, their pill was intense fasting and intense aesthetic practices of of disciplining your body um, and rigorous observance of the Torah and all of the, the rituals of purification That was the way that they said you could get a vision of God's throne room and the worship of angels, worship with the angels there. And I think this is something uh, along the lines of what the false teachers were likely peddling to these Christians in Colossae. Um, We can understand the appeal of this, can't we? Because even today, people... People are kind of like, I don't want to just read the Bible. I want something bigger and better and bolder. People are always chasing after some new spiritual experience. Have you noticed that? Give me a vision, God. Give me an angel. Give me a word. Give me something more than the Bible. One of the ways we know this is if you go into the Christian bookstore, you find all of these books that are on the shelf. People who have gone through a near-death experience and have entered into heaven and have written about it, and those are the books that become bestsellers, right? Or people who, there's a book recently published, 20 Minutes in Hell, somebody who has gone to Hades and come back to tell us about it, or someone who has talked with and seen an angel. The thing about these books, um, as far as I'm concerned, is my guess is they did see something. 
Absolutely. Satan says that if you want to see an angel, I'll be happy to give you a demon dressed in white. Like, I do believe without a doubt that that there are counterfeits, signs and wonders and miracles that are, I mean, if we, if we went to India today I, and we talked to some shaman there, we would hear stories. There would be things that would absolutely blow our minds. Uh, and we would be, you know, amazed and maybe even impressed. So we, I think we can understand the appeal of this mysticism. And some people are really fascinated with these types of things. We're fascinated with the realm of the unconscious or fantasies, dreams, nightmares, visions, the occult of symbols, of spirits, of the paranormal, of alchemy, of astrology, but especially of the subterranean unconsciousness. You think about a very influential thinker of the 20th century, Carl Jung. Uh, Jung's uh, psychology sought to, quote, reawaken people to the mysterious and terrifying subterranean world of the human psyche that slumbered beneath the rational structures of the modern age. It sought to reconnect us with a realm whose reality was still widely felt, although the once potent sense of its presence was was generally forgotten. That was Jungian psychology, to tap into the, the other world. I even know myself, I went through a period in my Christian life where I was really into trying to get a a word from God. Um, I tried very hard to speak in tongues. I wanted to deliver prophecies. I wanted to have the, the gift of healing. And I wanted to see healings and miracles and all of that. Eventually what ended up actually drawing me to Presbyterian Christianity was the message that the Bible is enough. <laughs> and Christ is enough. The word of God is enough. And therefore, I don't need a bigger, badder, more awesome spiritual experience If anything, what I really need and what we really need is to work on the ordinary stuff and the everydayness of the Christian life. Uh, We do need to focus on the ordinary disciplines of corporate worship, which, you know, most American Christians are not very good at, (laughs) and personal worship and family worship of Bible study prayer, and then of working as a faithful Christian in your vocation wherever God has placed you. But some churches really emphasize this. You hear expressions like radical faith, epic, revolutionary, explosive breakthroughs. Do you know where that comes from, actually? Well, it comes from here. But where, where it really came into, into um, larger expression in American Christianity was the 1980s and the baby boomers. You baby boomers, you guys— you are uh, somewhat responsible for this. But really, think of, baby boomers basically said, we're going to redo the church. They believed that the traditional church of the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s was too ordinary and boring with the weekly routine of just sacraments, prayer, praise, teaching, and fellowship. Boomers were really into a new plan for personal growth that would take your walk with God to a whole new level. And so they really, they completely redid how you did church on Sunday morning. This was outside of the box thinking, um, doing something big for God. And so what you notice then is that in the early 1980s, the 
non-denominational megachurch was born. That's where megachurches came from. So I asked myself this question. If Paul were here today, what would he warn us about? As, like, how does this translate? How does mysticism or asceticism translate to the church? What would he warn us about today? And here's what I came up with. I really believe that Paul would warn us about virtual reality. Um, I easily envision a world where Christians and even churches start to try to use virtual reality to achieve a higher spiritual consciousness. Um, I think think it's going to happen. I think that you will, within a decade, be able to immerse yourself in that virtual reality world, and you can go back into the garden, and you can walk and talk with God. You can have a prayer session where you hear the, the... the, the birds of the garden chirping and the, the brook of the stream. And you can, in virtual reality, you can go anywhere in the Bible. You can walk the streets of, of Galilee with Jesus. You, um, I think that the churches are going to try to do this even in their worship services. Um, virtual reality, I'm no prophet. I could be wrong. But... We're always looking for something bigger and better and more powerful and more extravagant. And so it seems to me that virtual reality completely plays into this. What is Paul's answer to mysticism and asceticism? Well, his his answer is quite simple. And by now, we ought to know what it is before he says it. (laughs) He says, all you need is Jesus Christ. Christ the King. That's all you need. If you hold fast to Christ... You'll have all that you need in any and every situation. He's already said in chapter 1, verse 18, that Christ is the head of the body, which is the church. And just as our physical bodies basically derive all of its life from its head, I mean, it's the head from which we see and think, hear, eat, and drink, just as the head nourishes all of our joints and muscles and ligaments and sinews, and is sustained by that, um, so we as Christians are nourished, not by embracing this or that new teaching or spiritual fad, but by holding fast to our head, who is Jesus Christ. So Paul's message is simple and very reassuring to these early Christians, is you are complete in Christ, and therefore be content in Christ. Be content in Jesus' word, and be content um, in him himself. Boiling it down this way, all you need is just more of what you already have. And that's where I'll return at the end of the sermon. All that you really need is all that you already have in Jesus Christ. On to the second trap that the demons lay. It is the trap of legalism. And you might want to write down this definition of legalism in your notes and in the back of your bulletin this morning. Legalism is any practice or belief that is added to the gospel that compromises the sufficiency of Christ as Savior or the adequacy of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide our lives. Legalism says, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is great. But in order to be Truly spiritual, 
in order to somehow get inside of God's inner circle, the inner ring, uh, there are a few more things that you need to do in order to be fully acceptable to God. Or legalism says, I love the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is great, but we need to, we need to make God's rules and his word more concrete. We need tangible regulations in order to be fully acceptable to God. So legalism is, again, any belief or practice that is added to the gospel that compromises the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as Savior or the adequacy of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide our lives. Again, I'll ask the question, what would make this appealing to them? And it would have been very appealing, and here's why. Okay, think for a moment you're living in the Roman Empire in the first century, and you're a serious-minded person. And you look out at the Roman Empire, and it is a world just full of debauchery, <laughs> sensuality, and sex, and debauchery, and drunkenness. It's a world of many gods. You've got to worship tons of them. And yet, most of the people in that world, they didn't believe in any of them or hardly any of them. So it was a religious world of hypocrisy. It was a world of sensuality. The principal appeal of Judaism to uh, a serious-minded Gentile in the first century was the fact that what Judaism would give you is a, a high and clear moral standard that you would have to live by. And Judaism was for somebody who was serious about life because it it demanded a lot of its adherence. Um, so if you were sick and tired of the filth of your society, you might well feel like the regulations of the Jewish Torah, the law, were the way to leave behind the polluted and licentious world of paganism. And I think that's probably what it feels like for someone who converts to Islam today, right? You know, if you're just, if you're, I mean, look, if you were living in France today and you saw just the crazy licentiousness of French society, um, you could see maybe why a Frenchman would say, yeah, I like a world where you tell me I need to pray five times a day and I can't eat pork and I have to do this and I have to do that. I want to live a self-disciplined life that is different than my fellow citizens. Uh, citizens, citizens. <laughs> what is more, there was a strong biblical argument to be made for these regulations. When you as a Gentile came into Judaism, you were entering into Abraham's story and Moses' story. And the key part of Abraham's story they had reduced it to was circumcision. It just makes sense that if you're entering into somebody else's story or entering into somebody else's community, you would adopt those things that are part of that community. Circumcision. Uh, it's also... You're entering into Moses' story. And Moses gave us the Torah. And there are many things the Torah requires of us. Dietary restrictions, the observance of the Jewish calendar. Um, and so following these regulations would definitely seem biblical. I mean, sure, this is based in the Bible. And it would make you feel like if you followed them, that you were really uh, achieving advances in your moral and spiritual life. So does it make sense why it would be appealing? Um, and yet it was so dead wrong. It was so wrong. Why was it so wrong? If you look around the room right now, you see the answer. Because in the gospel, God intended to make one body of Christ. Uh, he never intended there to be 
a Jewish church and a Gentile church. He intended it to be one body of Christ that's marked out by faith and that uh, is marked out by baptism. One new people who, who don't live by all of these restrictions. The restrictions were part of the earlier world. He said you died to that world in order to live in this world. And this world is the world of looking around the room and seeing your brothers and sisters and realizing the only reason we're here is by grace alone. God intended in the gospel to make it so clear that none of us do anything to deserve to be part of the body of Christ. It is all by grace. The false teachers were saying, well, if you don't follow these rules, we will not eat with you. It's funny that that's where actually the, the biggest fights came from. Who can we eat with? And the false teachers said, if you don't follow these rules, then we have no table fellowship with you, which was the ultimate form of exclusion. Likewise, if you don't follow these rules, we don't have table fellowship with you. At the ultimate meal, which was the ultimate form of exclusion. But God's purpose was for us to all join together. One loaf, one body, one body. And that's what he was giving to us in the gospel. Where do you see legalism in the church today? Um, That's a hard question I find to answer. Maybe because I'm afraid to get up on my own hobby horses and and articulate it that way. Um, But maybe the question is, where do you hear people saying that you can't be a good Christian unless you, you know, dot, dot, dot. Where do you hear people saying that? Well, take smoking as an example. Can Christians smoke? What does the scripture say about smoking? Well, nothing directly, Right? Indirectly, perhaps, someone might argue that we're supposed to protect our bodies from harmful influences because we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and that's true. It's probably not a good idea to smoke. But if you're going to ride the horse that we should never do anything that is harmful to our bodies, as one pastor said, you've got a lot of ground to cover on that horse. <laughs> there are a lot of decisions that get made in the grocery store about what you buy, There are a lot of decisions you make about sleep and exercise that would be definitely affected if you made the rule that we do nothing so harmful as as smoke. That doesn't mean it's a good idea to smoke, but we don't make rules about that being part of being a good Christian because the Bible doesn't make rules about smoking. Another place I could think of, what about the internet? Some of us download things on the internet that we should not see. So we have a a Christian man here, and he knows that this is an area of weakness. So he makes a rule that he will not have the internet in his home. Uh, And he's going to be very conscious, uh, aware of open networks and connections and coffee shops. He's not going to go on any of those things. Is that wrong for the guy to say, I'm not going to have the internet in my house? Absolutely not. That's probably wisdom. That's a man who knows his own weaknesses and decides to put up appropriate guardrails to guard uh, the way of his life. But of course, the the, the real problem is when he makes that rule a rule for everyone else to follow. (laughs) Or, uh, you know, you cannot have internet in your home that doesn't have a, a certain kind of internet filter. And that becomes the rule that good Christians need to follow. Um, you know, sometimes... 
There are political rules. Sometimes there are how to raise your kids kind of rules. There's dating and courtship and bottle feeding versus breastfeeding and this, that, and the other. I, I don't know that any of the Christians who have strong convictions on those points are out there saying, you can't be a Christian if you believe in this. But we have to be very careful that our strong convictions on these things don't you know, lend themselves to, you can't be a good Christian if you don't follow my way. And we begin to say, I'm not going to associate with those Christians who, who believe this. Um, one of the main things Paul longs for, for these new Christians, is to realize, as I said before, you don't believe, belong to the old world of man-made regulations anymore. The whole do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, the harsh treatment of your body, the asceticism, all of those things, he says, have an appearance of wisdom. They make sense, but, he says, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, only the Holy Spirit can really transform a man. Because you were raised with Christ, he goes on, you were not part of the old world, but the new. And Christ is the one to whom all the rules and regulations pointed. And I think what Paul would say to us this morning is simply, then learn how to delight in Christ. Learn how to take your joy in Christ and feel your freedom in Christ. Let me finish up with a story that is found in the, John's gospel, John chapter 2. John records this for us. It's the very first miracle recorded in the gospel of John. And John actually calls this the, uh, the first sign of Jesus Christ. It takes place when Jesus and his family were invited to a wedding in the city of Cana. Weddings in those days, you probably know, were big, big deals. They were kind of like a public festival in a small town. They went over a several day, day, day period of time. Uh, they were full of feasting and drinking. And in John's story, he tells us that something terrible has happened at this wedding. What is that terrible thing? They have run out of wine. The, the story is precious because uh, for, for several reasons. It gives us a beautiful picture into Jesus' relationship with his mother Mary, whom we read Mary earlier today. Um, the tenderness, but also the firmness of a son with his mother. She comes to him and she has that look on her face that only a mother can have. And she says, we have no more wine. And Jesus says, woman, <laughs> my time is not here yet. He's mysteriously firm with her. But in the end, if you read the story, you know that, that uh, he solves the problem. Without waving his hands in some type of magical mumbo-jumbo, he just simply turns the water in several big stone jars into top-shelf wine. When you look at the amount of wine, it turns out we estimate that it was somewhere between 600 and maybe as many as 900 bottles of really high-end wine. I mean, okay, if you can imagine, I should, if I had a sermon prop and I took two big bottles of $150 wine and I had a container here and I poured them in and you could just hear the glug, 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 glug as it's going in. Imagine that 450 times in a row. Can you hear it? Can you see it? 
Can you smell it? Imagine the smell if we had six to 900 bottles of open wine in the front of our sanctuary this morning. Imagine how aromatic that would be. I mean, the smell of, of the best wine like that open to the air, it would be, it would be unbelievable. And then in the story, it's really funny. The master of the ceremonies comes to the groom and he says, he says, man, you are amazing. You saved the best wine until now. Normally what people do at wedding ceremonies is you you serve the best wine first. And then once everybody is kind of tipsy and has a buzz, then you bring out the cheap stuff. But man, you, you crushed it. (laughs) You saved saved the best wine until now. Probably the most unfortunate part of the story is John never records for us the uh, response of the groom. The groom had no idea what had happened. And so that guy had to be like, whoa, uh, what's going on here? I, I would love to be, have been a fly on the wall in that conversation. But here's the catch and here's what's the key. Do you remember what kind of jars those were? Those were jars for ceremonial washing. If you were a Jew, in a day when there was no soap, you you didn't wash your hands in soap, in order to come in and share a meal together, you had to take the ceremonial water and pour it over your hands. We're not like those dirty Gentiles, you know. We're Jews who, when we eat together, we we eat clean. And, And it was the washing, the ceremonial washing of your hand that showed that you were Torah observant and that you were following it. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture somebody who walks into that wedding late. <laughs> the guy who comes in a day late. And he steps in through the, through the doorway and he goes, he's ready to pour the ceremonial water onto his hands. And he realizes, wow, this is not water. This is wine. This is a sign. What is Jesus signifying? He is signifying that I am here now. And the days of ceremony are over. I am here now. I am the reality. I am the Lord of the feast. I am the bringer of true joy. One thing you'll notice always about legalism is legalism is birthed in fear. You're afraid. You're afraid of of being tripped up by the world. But isn't it interesting the way Jesus combats legalism? It's with wine, which is the sign of joy. He says, I am here now, and you're not going to have inexpensive wine. I'm going to set up this couple with the greatest wedding present that has ever been given, and I'm going to make more wine than a whole village can drink because this is a picture of what it's like when I am here in your life. In the life of a church. Yes, it is easy, especially if you come out of a background where you lived a really crazy life and you did a lot of really stupid things. It is easy to come into Christianity and love a faith that gives you lots of rules because legalism is safe. But Jesus is joy. And he says, I am something so much better than that. Paul is saying, don't meet the reality and then walk back over to the shadows. All you need is Jesus Christ, the King. In Christ, there's the fullness of joy. In him, you have every spiritual blessing known to man and to angels both. And so you and I are to live our lives in the freedom of, of Christ uh, and his grace. Amen.